Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio in Atlanta, it's time for Senior Salute Radio. Senior Salute Radio is presented by the elder and disability law firm of Victoria L. Collier. Hello, and welcome to Senior Salute Radio. I am your host, Victoria Collier. Senior Salute Radio brings timely information to leading age boomers and seniors addressing the issues of aging, caregiving, and maintaining quality of life. Today, in recognition of Halloween, we will be discussing the scary parts of aging and how to play it safe. With regard to that, I want to start off with what are the joys and fears of Halloween? Well, first, the joys are decorating, dressing up, and running around with friends, and getting candy, and staying up late. Halloween was not one of my favorite uh, ho- uh, holidays when I was a child. I remember one of my first costumes was Casper the Friendly Ghost, and uh, so not real scary, but now that I'm a parent of five-year-old twins, it's scary as a parent having children, um, and my kids do love Halloween, and especially my son, who wants to really decorate the outside of our house as scary as possible. And uh, fortunately, he chose a costume that's also not very scary, uh, like I did when I was a kid. It was he is going to be Captain America, and my daughter is going to be a witch that actually looks more like a princess than a witch. So I'm happy about that. But I do have some fears as a parent, um, and the fears one is them getting hurt. Last year, my daughter was Spider-Man, and she was running up the street to meet one of her friends, and she fell down and banged up her knees, and that happens when they're excited and running from house to house and seeing their friends, but it really put a damper on the rest of the experience of of gathering the candy, Um, and speaking of candy, one of the other fears is getting bad candy, and I don't mean the kind you don't like. What I mean is candy that will make you sick. And now, on Facebook, I recently saw a warning by Clark Howard uh, of candy that looks like and is disguised, uh, I'm sorry, drugs that are disguised as candy. And I didn't even think about those kind of things as kids. And I know that my parents scoured through my candy to make sure that, you know, I was getting candy that was not already opened or had partially, you know, unwrapped uh, items. But I thought it was just because they didn't want me to eat anything. Uh, But as parents, there's so much to be concerned about. And, of course, we want to eliminate or reduce those fears. And so to do that on Halloween, we walk in groups. Parents stay with their children. And certainly reviewing the candy before eating it. And so I want to take the spirit of Halloween and then talk about the joys and fears of aging with regard to what are we excited about, what are our fears, and then to eliminate and reduce the fears of that as well. You are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier, and we are discussing the scary parts of aging and how to play it safe. So the joys of aging... From what I gather from my parents, also from the clients that I meet with, and having surrounded myself with seniors throughout the years, is that one of the biggest joys I witness from them is 
the way they talk about having grandchildren and spending their time with the grandchildren and having an effect on their lives as they grow and mature and get to witness that. Also, some other joys are really being able to spend time, quality time, doing activities that they enjoy, like reading or gardening or traveling. And while many of them are too humble to acknowledge it, but a joy I see is the wisdom that comes with experience and aging often comes with experience. And so the wisdom they have gathered to be able to sit back and make good decisions um, and help guide those who they're still influencing like their children and grandchildren and friends. So those are some of the joys that we see. But the fears are much more obvious than the joys. And the fears that people have when they're aging is becoming disabled, uh, having a fall and breaking a hip, not being able to live at home anymore, needing long-term care, which is the assistance of another person to help with activities of daily living, like walking and bathing and dressing, going to the restroom. Um, and ultimately, the fear of living in a nursing home, because most people want to live at home even if they need care. And so the thought of going to a nursing home still has the stigma, right or wrong, but this is the end. Um, I'm going to die if I go there. And then when we do become disabled, when we do need long-term care, then there's the fear of running out of money. How am I going to pay for that? Can I still leave anything to my children? What I've built up, my house, my legacy. And then speaking of children, I don't want to be a burden on my children or my family. So I have a fear of if I run out of money or if I need care, then am I going to burden my children to provide that care or to pay on my behalf because I don't have the funds anymore? And so how do we eliminate or reduce those fears that we all have, especially as we become older? And so the primary ways to be able to reduce or eliminate those fears is first and foremost, being aware of the possible crisis situations and not burying our heads in the sand and saying, this isn't going to happen to me. This only happens to other people. Even though I had to take care of my mother, nothing's ever going to happen to me. So we need to think about the possible situations that could happen and how we are going to respond to that. And when we're thinking about the possible situations, then we need to create solutions before the crisis, before we are in that situation. So being aware of what the solutions are so that we can then create the solutions that would work best for us. And then that takes planning and it's pre-planning so that we can avoid a crisis or at least go through the crisis in a smoother way so that we can manage it better instead of making emotional split decision, um, rash decisions under a whole lot of stress because when things like that happen, we are definitely operating in a different mindset. And so if we can pre-plan and then 
review the plan as life happens, it makes the transition so much better, so much easier. So to illustrate the points of how to mitigate fears, I want to share some examples, some real life examples of situations that have occurred and that do occur on a daily basis with millions of uh, Americans that are seniors and how to recognize those signs, how to then plan for it to try to avoid any of the crisis situations. And so my first situation is with one of my very first clients I ever had, and her name is Miss Williams. And she was living independently in her own home and she had some memory loss, some pretty severe memory loss. And she was a widow and she had outlived all of her siblings and she did not have any children. And so the person who was really taking care of her, and I don't mean on a day-to-day basis, but really just checking in to see if she was okay, was a neighbor who lived in the apartment complex that Miss Williams lived in. And the neighbor started recognizing that Miss Williams would leave her front door open at any time of day or night. And they were in a high-risk neighborhood where she would likely, under other circumstances, not leave her door open at any time, and much less she probably would have them locked all of the time. And even in great neighborhoods, you know, we keep our doors closed and locked in this day and age. Um, But this was not happening for Miss Williams. And the other things that were going on is that she would leave her bathtub running. And because she was not on the ground floor, uh, when it overflowed the bathtub, it would damage the apartment below. And at the third time this happened, the landlord decided Miss Williams could not live there anymore. And truly, Miss Williams could not live on her own anymore. And so that's how I got involved was that we were looking for placement for Miss Williams and who had the authority to help her transition into another environment such as assisted living or nursing home care. And we are when we are looking for legal authority, if she wasn't able to make those decisions for herself, then what we're really looking for is somebody who had a financial power of attorney. And because she did not have a spouse and because she did not have children, um, we did not find anyone with financial power of attorney for her. Um, it was previously her sister who had passed away. What we did find, however, when we were able to access some of her financial affairs was that she had a cousin who had come and under the guise of helping had depleted all of the resources that he knew she had. And then he went away. We couldn't find him either. And if we had, it would certainly not be to be the financial power attorney. (laughs) It would be hopefully to recover some of the money that he had taken. Uh, Nonetheless, she was very limited in her options. And while she was very physically capable and strong, she did need the guidance of someone else to make some decisions for her where she's going to live and how and how to pay for that. And so we were able to assist her in getting into a nursing home. And had she had more resources or had she known about the veterans benefits that she could have been eligible for, 
we might have been able to find a placement that was less restrictive than a nursing home, such as assisted living. But by the time we were involved, it was too late to investigate those options, and she did live the remaining years of her life, which was approximately four years, at a nursing home, and she was pleasantly um, you know, comfortable there. Uh, and taken care of very well there. But if you were to ask her earlier in life, could she have or would she have done something different? Then the answer is likely yes. She would have used the support system around her and made sure that her documents were in place um, and certainly investigated the VA benefits so that she could have lived in a less restrictive environment than a nursing home, like an assisted living. You are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier, and we are discussing the scary parts of aging and how to play it safe. And we were just talking about Miss Williams, one of my very first clients, who uh, was a single lady and had some memory loss and did not have any financial uh, documents in place or legal documents in place and ultimately needed to move to a nursing home um, instead of other environments, just because she didn't do any planning with regard to her finances. And so I want to give you a similar story um, on another client I had, who's, her name is Miss Smith, and she was actually living in an assisted living facility for four years when her son came to my office for help. So Miss Smith was a widow as well. And her husband was in the military and had served during a wartime period, which was World War II. And because of that, they had some, um, there are some benefits available that pays tax-free income to help pay for home health care, assisted living care, and nursing home care for both veterans uh, who are alive and served in the military during a wartime period, but also for the widows or widowers of veterans who need that level of care as well. Well, Miss Smith and her family did not know about that when she first moved to the assisted living facility four years prior to coming to meet with me. And at the point they came to meet with me, she had exhausted all of her funds. And her son, which was an only child, was um, taking care of her and paying the extras out of his own pocket to keep his mother comfortable in a home that she had uh, definitely eased into and made her home. And they were hoping that that would be her home for life. And so the reason they came to me was because her son lost his job. And so he wasn't able to support her anymore. And in the midst of that, his son her son also had a child who was in law school. And so he was helping his child go through school as well. And so kind of what you understand to be that sandwich generation where you're taking care of both parents and children, this is where Miss Smith's son found himself. And so they came in to find out what are our options. And under traditional elder care law, we would have looked at, well, she needs to move to a nursing home because she doesn't have money to pay for other arrangements. And if she moved to a nursing home, then she could get Medicaid to help her pay for her care. And while that seems like a reasonable explanation and a reasonable course of action, the one thing holding Miss Smith back was that she did still own a house in another state in a senior community that was on a golf course 
They had been for sale for four years, but it couldn't sell. For whatever reason, it just wasn't selling. And I think it had a lot to do with the market back in the time. But the fact of the matter is she had a lot of equity in the house um, that she would have lost, but she didn't have any more ability to pull from a line of credit because they can only, you know, they only allow you to pull so much. And she had maxed out her line of credit on the house. And if she had gone to a nursing home, then all of her income would have gone to the nursing home to help pay for her care. And then anything above that, any charges above that, the state of Georgia and the federal government would cover. Well, because all of her income had to go to the nursing home for her care if she was on Medicaid, that would not allow her to keep any income to help pay off the line of credit that she had. And so ultimately, she would have lost that house to foreclosure, and she would have lost all the equity that she had in the house. So we had to look for other options. And at that point, I explained to them that there was this veterans benefits for widows that she could receive under today's rates up to $1,149 per month to help offset the assisted living cost. And that was a beautiful option because that would have been just enough to cover the expenses at the assisted living and give her enough income to continue paying her line of credit on the house until it sold. And so she was able to stay in that home that she had been living in for four years and did not want to leave and able to keep her house until it sold and be able to pay for the assisted living. And so the veterans benefits is a huge uh, way to mitigate our fears of running out of money is because if we fit the criteria, then we can get tax-free income to help pay for the home health care, assisted living care, and nursing home care. And that criteria for wartime veterans is that the veteran had to have served in the military for at least 90 days on active duty with one of those days being during a wartime period. The wartime periods being World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and then the desert storms. And Congress outlines the dates. And just for example here, when I'm in a seminar or a community presentation, I will ask the room, when did World War II end? And overwhelmingly, the room will respond with 1945. And I will say, that's what we all think. And why is that? That's because that's what the Wall Street Journal said and the New York Times said when the bomb hit. And basically, the war is over. Well, Congress sets the dates for us. And the World War II did not actually end until December 31st of 1946. So when we are looking at benefits that could be available to us, we need to actually explore them with someone, an advisor who knows the laws, but knows the details of the laws as well. Because if we were to assume that, no, I didn't serve in a wartime period because I entered the military in June of 1946, then we would be leaving money on the table, money that can pay for our home health care and assisted living care and really maintain our quality of life. And that's what we really want is to be able to maintain our quality of life, not run out of money and not burden our children. And so the VA benefits is one way to do that. And a book that I have written 
to help explain these VA benefits is called 47 Secret Veterans Benefits for Seniors. And that's available on Amazon.com. And I will say this, since we're talking about VA benefits currently, is that the VA has proposed changes to the rules so that it is harder for veterans and their widows to qualify for those benefits. And we expect those changes to take place in February of 2016. And so if you feel that you could qualify for the VA benefit or would like to see if you qualify, then we would want to make sure that you are always familiar of any laws that change. And so one of the laws that they plan to change has to do with the other criteria to qualify, and that's the income and asset criteria. And currently, a person who qualifies has to have assets under $80,000. And that excludes the home place, and it excludes like your personal aspects like cars and furniture. Well, one of the things the VA is trying to do is say that if you made any gifts of your assets to anyone within three years of filing an application, then you will be penalized and you won't qualify for the benefit for possibly up to 10 years. And so people make gifts all the time. Um, they pay for their children's wedding or their grandchildren's college education. And those people may not get VA benefits because they are helping family members out with daily living uh, activities. And so before filing a VA application, it's critical to see an advisor who's accredited by the VA to ensure that there's no red flags that would prohibit you from qualifying for the benefits. Or that if there are, that we wait the right amount of time before we apply. The other change that the VA wants to make, which is really harsh, is that currently the home place is exempt regardless of the size of the lot that the home place sits on. But the VA wants to change it to where only up to two acres is exempt and the rest of the land would be a countable resource. And it doesn't matter what the value of the property is. What matters is how much of it do you have? So somebody who lives in an efficiency condo in New York City that's worth $1.5 million would be an exempt resource. But a farmer in Georgia has 10, 15, 20 acres and it's worth $150,000, it would be counted against them and they would not be able to get the VA benefit. And that's just an injustice. Um, but what's important is to see an advocate an elder care attorney who is accredited by the VA to find out, A, have the laws changed? And if they have not, is there anything to do now to protect yourself so that you can uh, protect your assets before the laws change? Or after the laws change, how a strategic plan could be put in place in advance so that way you are ready when you need the VA benefits to apply for them and having already protected yourself and your stuff. You are listening to Senior Salute, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier, and we are discussing the scary parts of aging and how to play it safe. And the first story we gave was about Mrs. Williams, who didn't have any legal documents in place and needed them when she needed long-term care. And the second, so far, we've talked about is the transition into assisted living and being aware that 
There are VA benefits available to help pay for home health care, assisted care, and nursing home care. And when people are afraid of becoming disabled or needing long-term care and running out of money, it's critical that we understand the issues and that we understand what possible solutions are so that we don't have to live the reality of those fears. So the next story I would like to share is about Mr. Jones. And Mr. Jones was healthy and independent Although he did have some issues, um, like diabetes and he's in, uh, Parkinson's and he started to decline. And so his children started helping out, uh, stopping by the house once in a while and bringing meals and calling. And then it became a point where he needed home health care because that's where he wanted to live. He'd been in his home for 40 years and his children wanted to respect his decisions to stay at home. And so he started spending down his money. And Mr. Jones had about 200000 in a savings account, and he also had about 400000 in a retirement account. And Mr. Jones was single, but he had children. And so in the retirement account, he named his children as beneficiaries. Okay. So when I meet with a client and they come to me with this scenario, and I say, if you need long-term care, what asset do you think you'll spend first? And most people will say, well, I'm going to spend my savings. And I'll say, okay, so that's your savings account, your money market account, and your CDs. Yes. And then what happens when you um, spend through all of that? Well, then I guess I'll spend my IRA money, your retirement accounts, 403Bs, 401Ks, uh, traditional retirements. And then I'll say, okay. And so then I'll ask, well, when you die, do you want your kids to get anything? Of course I do. You know, I've been saving not just for me, but also for them. And I'd like to leave them something. Great. Would you like to save taxes? Well, yeah, I don't want to pay any more in taxes than I have to. Then we go through, well, there are five common mistakes people do with their retirement accounts. And one of those mistakes is using it last to pay for long-term care. And the reason for that is when you die and you are leaving your retirement account to someone other than a spouse, so your children, for example, then they must, upon your death, take the distribution of that retirement account within a five-year period, which means that they're paying taxes on that, and the taxes are anywhere from 35 to 45%. So you are off the top losing almost half of what you have saved for the kids. Instead, if you were to use your retirement accounts, the income you are receiving that you're now using to pay for care, you can itemize your deductions because now you have high medical costs to offset those. And when you leave the cash accounts, such as your savings and your money market accounts to your kids, there aren't any taxes on that. So you get to pass 100% 
to your family members of those kind of assets. Now, this is not legal advice to anyone specific. I want to be clear on that. And it's certainly not financial advice. What I am saying in generalities is that people make mistakes as to which assets to access first and use for their care. And so a good assessment as to what do you have, how do you own it, and what do you want to do with it to take care of yourself and to leave to your family members is very important as to how we select and prioritize our planning and to take care of ourselves. And so Mr. Jones, if he had come to us from the beginning, then we would have been able to save a lot of money in taxes that ultimately his children are going to have to pay and then not have for themselves. And so that's a large part of elder care planning is not just making sure you've got documents in place, a will and powers of attorney. We call that death planning. Okay. What we want to do is make sure that we have enough money to take care of ourselves for care purposes and minimize the taxes we pay upon death and make sure our kids get what we want them to have. And that's what's called planning and not just creating documents. And so when we create a plan, we're looking at your income, your finances, and your overall desires and goals. And for Mr. Jones, if he was healthy enough, there's also ways that we can not just prevent the taxes on his IRA, but we can actually leverage it to pay for long-term care as well. And so we look at those options also. And so the next scenario I'd like to go to is Mr. and Mrs. King. That is a married couple. And Mr. King is on hospice. And what hospice means is there's, there's more likely than not that you will pass away within six months of a terminal condition. And doesn't mean that you will, but to qualify for hospice, there has to be a medical diagnosis that you have a terminal illness that you could die within six months. And at that point, who do you think is most scared in that situation? It's Mrs. King. Because Oftentimes, the spouse and most often the female spouse is going to lose a lot of the income when the other spouse dies. In fact, it sometimes goes down to half. And so she's wondering, how am I going to live on less income? And how can we preserve our assets? And Mr. King might be worried about that too. But because they had a will in place, they think that they've taken care of everything because everything's left to Mrs. King. So she has everything he had, except maybe less income. So why wouldn't she be okay? Well, Mrs. King also needs long-term care. She's not terminal, um, but she is starting to decline. She's elderly and she could live a long time. And it doesn't take very long to deplete our resources when we're paying for care. In fact, in the Atlanta area, um, one of the sought after nursing homes is easily $8,500 a month. And home health care is about 18 to $24 an hour. And if you're getting that 24 seven, uh, then it's going to run you between eight to $12,000 a month, which is not sustainable for a lot of people for an extended period of time. So one of the things that Mr. King could have done and should have done to really make sure Miss King was protected in the best way possible was instead of just leaving a traditional sweetheart will. And what I mean by that is I love you so much, sweetheart. You get everything I have is that he would have done a sweetheart will with a tr twist 
then that twist is what we call a special needs trust, where we would put everything in Mr. King's name because we know he's going to pass away first. So we want it all to be in his name and then pass through to that special needs trust inside his will that then protects everything for Mrs. King from Medicaid. Then Medicaid could not take any of it. And also, if she needed VA benefits, it likely would be protected from VA as well if she was the widow of a veteran. And then when it's protected like that, then we can let it stretch and we can leverage it in ways that we might not be able to otherwise. And so sometimes we actually do what's called death planning and we're planning for But what we're actually doing is planning for the survivor to make sure that we're protecting as much as we can for the survivor through the will of the one who we think might pass away first. Okay, Um, so in married couples, that's a wonderful way to be able to do some planning so that the person who is passing away doesn't have to pass away under the stress of am I leaving my spouse destitute? Okay, so you are live. You are listening to Senior Salute Radio presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier. And I am Victoria L. Collier, your host, and we are discussing the scary parts of aging and how to play it safe. And so what I'm doing is discussing some common scenarios of situations to plan for, to be aware of, so that we don't have to operate in a crisis. We can do pre-planning and make sure that our affairs are taking taking, um taking effect the way we want them to and that our children or those who are taking care of us know what to do and they're not left scrambling. So I just want to talk about two more scenarios. And one of those is for Mr. Jackson and Mr. Jackson was living in a nursing home and he was on Medicaid and everything was going fine and he lived for quite the while. But the thing is he had a house and the house is exempt for Medicaid purposes which means you can have it and still qualify for Medicaid. But then when you die, the state of Georgia puts a lien on it and basically pulls it back. And they say the philosophy is we will help you while you're alive, but we want our money back when you die because the idea of the program is to help the person who needs care, not to enrich beneficiaries. Um, So Mr. Jackson had a house. And in this situation, he did die, and it is subject to estate recovery. But what's particular about this family is that the laws of Georgia say that they will not claim against your estate when you die if your estate is valued less than $25,000. And so Mr. Jackson's house, um, the tax value was right around $150,000. And so that definitely sounds like more than a more than 25,000. So it sounds like it would be recovered. Well, except for the problem with Mr. Jackson's house was that it needed a lot of work. And so when they put the work into it, then it actually, and also the market went down um, way back in 2008. I think we can all remember 2008, nine, the market went way down. Plus they put a lot of money into the house. And so when they did all that, it actually brought the value of the house down below 25000 And so, or I should say, um, the recovery from the state after doing all the calculations, the family would have only had to pay the state $6,000 in recovery. 
And that would have been a beautiful situation because they were looking at a demand of $130,000 originally, and it had been reduced down to $6,000. And that sounds like a great savings. And instead of paying the state back when it was at that low of $6,000 when they could have and should have, instead, they didn't pay the state back and they waited and waited until the house actually sold. Well, the market came back up and because of all the money they put into it, it brought the value of the house up as well. And they sold the house right about 150000 And so naturally, the state doesn't want 6000 anymore. They want all of the 130 they had originally demanded. And so in that case, the family definitely is walking away with less money that could have been avoided if they had seen a counselor that knows about Medicaid and could have strategically helped them to spend the 6000 instead of now the 130000 And so the key here that you might be hearing is that There are situations that come up and while families, very smart families, very educated families um, want to do it on their own because they think that going through a lawyer or another type of advisor is very expensive. And I'll be honest with you, we're not cheap. However, when you're talking about the difference between paying $6,000 or $130,000 for a house, I can guarantee you that the legal fees are a lot less than that. Um, and so just having a consultation sometimes is all it takes to be able to save tens of thousands of dollars just to know what are the solutions and do I have a plan. And then the last scenario I'd like to leave you with on that topic is for adults who have adult children with disabilities and planning for that scenario. And I see so many adults that are in their 80s that have been caring for their children their entire lives and their children are in their 50s and 60s and the 80-year-old cannot conceive of the fact that the 80-year-old might die and we have to make provision for that 50 to 60-year-old. And how are we going to do that? And not just financially, but also where they're going to live, which then, of course, affects the finances. So one of two scenarios usually happens prior to the adult, prior to the senior getting quality advice. So one thing that happens is that the senior will leave, will basically disinherit this disabled child. And if they have other children, they'll say, I'm going to give it to all my other children, all my assets to my other children, because my disabled child is on Medicaid. And if I give them any of my money, they will lose their Medicaid and they need that Medicaid because they need the Medicare that goes with it, the the medical uh, that goes with it, not to mention the income. And so they'll just disinherit the child. And while that Seems okay because all the children get along and the other two children are going to take care of their sibling, of course. Even in the best families, sometimes things happen, such as if I give my money to child A, my oldest child, and child B is the one with disabilities, I give it to child A, everything's going along well, they're taking care of child B, and then child A gets a divorce. Well, that money in child A's name is subject to divorce. And now 
It's half the money they used to have. And so child B is definitely negatively affected by that. Or child A could lose their job. Child A could have tax problems or bankruptcy problems, which means that all of that money that's being held for child B is not there for child B anymore. So instead, we don't want to disinherit child B. What we want to do is set up just like the married couple where uh, Mr. King was on hospice. We want to put in the senior's will a trust provision for the disabled child. And it would be a special needs trust, which is the only kind of trust that protects against losing Medicaid benefits or other government assistance programs. The second error is that the senior is trying to do the right thing and goes to a lawyer and the lawyer is not in tune with the Medicaid program. And the lawyer says, yes, you do need a trust. This person cannot take care of themselves. But the lawyer sets up what's called a support and maintenance trust. And isn't that sound like exactly what you need? I want to support and maintain my child. I want to provide for their health and maintenance. That's what we call the health education support and maintenance trust. And it sounds exactly like what we want. But it's the exact wrong thing, because if we use that language, health, support, education, and maintenance, in any format that you want to say that kind of language, that money in that type of trust is 100% countable against you for Medicaid. And you must spend it all down before you can either maintain or obtain government assistance. And so while they thought they were doing the right thing and they went to a lawyer, unfortunately, is the wrong kind of lawyer. And so they didn't have the right kind of trust and it did the exact opposite of what they were hoping it would do. So we want to make sure that we have the right kind of legal documents and you're seeing the right kind of lawyer. Some of these estate planning um, mistakes I outlined in my book called Blooper Episodes in Estate Planning and Elder Law, Lessons from Primetime TV. So we take the lessons from the 50s and 60s TV sitcoms to illustrate in a cute, funny, but remember a way how to actually do an estate plan the right way based on your specific needs. And one of the issues that I hear quite a lot when people call our office is, you know, they of course want to know what the fees are. And we quote, a range of fees and like, oh my gosh, that's so expensive. And my response to that is, it certainly does sound expensive for if you're comparing us to someone who just drafts documents. But when we're actually looking at your specific needs, your special circumstances, and we create a plan for you that's going to preserve what you, what's important to you to include your quality of life, to include taking care of your children and to include protecting your assets, then it's actually a very small price to pay when we're protecting so much. And so I encourage you to look into that information. Um, and even if it's just getting a copy of our books, blooper episodes in estate planning and elder law, protect your IRA, avoid the five common mistakes, the uh, VA book, 47 Secret Veterans Benefits for Seniors, which that one is available on Amazon.com. And also, don't go broke in a nursing home where we have strategies where we can help leverage your money instead of using it all down before you go broke. Um, that's what I encourage you to do is in educate yourself and use the right kind of lawyer. And a traditional estate planning lawyer is really great. 
when we're younger and we're planning just for death distribution. But if we need long-term care or if we have specific issues like taking care of others with disabilities, then we really need a specialist in that, and that would be an elder care attorney who is preferably a certified elder law attorney. I am Victoria L. Collier, and I am a certified elder law attorney, and I am a fellow of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, which is our national organization. And we would be happy to assist you in any kind of assessment uh, that you would like. And we provide monthly free educational workshops right in our office, which is located in downtown Decatur. To reach us, our phone number is 404-370-0696. That's 404-370-0696. And our website is elderlawgeorgia.com. Dot com and Georgia is spelled out so that's elderlawgeorgia.com you have been listening to senior salute which is a monthly show bringing timely information for leading age boomers and is available 24/7 online by visiting senior salute radio business radio x.com and I want to thank our listeners today we salute you <laughs>